0: Today's conversation on Espejos de Estlan is about green corn and sacred fire, indigenous ceremonies of resistance, and the eco-literacy project at the University of New Mexico. Our guests are Dr. Michelle Hall-Kels, Associate Professor in the Department of English at the University of New Mexico. Dr. Kels is currently Program Chair for the National Consortium of Environmental Rhetoric and Writing. She also serves as Project Chair of the Salt of the Earth Recovery Project. Dr. Rachel Jackson, Cherokee Nation of Oklahoma and Associate Professor of Native American Literatures and Rhetorics at the University of Oklahoma. Dr. Jackson's talk at the Ecoliteracy at the University of New Mexico was about green corn and sacred fire. And in the way the green corn ceremonies align Ancient story with food ways and cultural resistance. For Espejos de Estlan show, Cristina Bachin. We are in Espejos de Estlan today with our guest. Dr. Michelle Holkels and Dr. Rachel C. Jackson, thank you so much for coming today.
1: Thank you for thank the invitation. You.
0: The reason because we have uh, these uh, talented professor scholars uh, in today 's show is because you, Dr. Michelle Holkels, you are bringing lots of new voices through the Eco Literacy project. My first question when I was reading about your project was like, are we?" eco-illiterate that we need to learn more?
1: We want to respond to the current issues that we're facing globally and by responding and coordinating conversations locally and connecting communities, connecting our environmental issues and the resources we have to bring to those questions and problems. And we believe that any conversation about environmental literacy needs to be grounded in issues of diversity and social justice. So, hence our invitation for Rachel Jackson to come.
0: Dr. Rachel Jackson, uh, I would like to know, as listener, more, more than the hostess of this show, what triggered your interest on this, on this topic?
1: Well,
2: my interest in this topic is very personal because it's um, a part of my own story, I think that we are all embodiments of history um, so that we're born at certain intersections of cultures, certain intersections of land um, and um, peoples. And I always had questions. I grew up in a family where I always knew that I was native. Um, My mother made that very clear to me uh, as a child, and yet I had a strong desire to know more about what that meant. Um, I knew that we were Cherokee. Um, My grandfather, who um, passed away when I was young, a teenager, um, embodied a lot of what I thought Cherokee um, meant, what being Cherokee meant. And yet, I knew very little about our history. I knew very little about our family story. And so graduate school afforded me an opportunity to look into the archives, looking for my family and my family members. Um, One of my friends, who's also a a well-known Cherokee scholar, Ellen Cushman, you know, she makes the statement that Native Americans are among the most well-documented people on the planet, mainly because of, in this country, federal policies to remove them um, and assimilate them. And so I was able to look at these documents, um, the Cherokee census of 1830, for instance, looking for my family's names. And um, it was really a journey of self-discovery and um, honoring my ancestors, you know, my forebears who took that long journey away from the lands that they loved, the lands that had been traditionally theirs and culturally theirs for centuries. And it brought me into a space where I could more truly imagine what that experience was like and how I carry those stories in the present with me and into the world. Um, so, yes, I would say my work is inspired by my own desire to know my people um, and myself. I guess in this trip that you took since you
0: were a child, uh, now it, it brought you uh, you to this uh, Field of it might have uh, also meant that uh, you had some stories shared by your ancestors, some abuelas, some grandmother. Mm I'm sorry, grandmother. So I really congratulate for that work. How healing can be on one side, but at the same time, how enlightening it can be. There was any of these steps on your trip
2: that uh, was more meaningful to you? You know, when I was born, my grandparents, my, you know, their generation was already in their 70s. And so I had very little time with them before they, you know, transitioned. Uh, And so... When I think about stories that my family told, um, I can, you know, I have a dear aunt who tells stories about my great-grandfather, who was Cherokee, um, songs that he would sing, um, ways that he would protect the family spiritually. And, um, you know, I had a a great aunt who, you know, had many stories about attending school at Haskell in Kansas, um, Native American University there. But stories about our removal were not told. You know, um, I imagine because that trauma, you know, my family treated it as something not to talk about. So for me in my research, when I came across um, the story of my um, great, great, great grandfather, George Owens, um, who had sided with the Cherokee leader, John Ross, who was very against removal, ceding any lands, um, any more than they already had ceded to the federal government. Um, my great great uh, great grandfather uh, George Owens, sided with ross, and I thought to myself, My gosh, he made himself so vulnerable when he did that um, to come out publicly and to say no to to you know hegemonic power at the at that time and um it made me feel. Like my own resistance, my own practices of resistance in the world come come to me through him, through through my ancestry, that it's something in my blood, in my body. um And you know, later on in my research, I discovered that the the federal Indian agent um to the Cherokees Benjamin Chastain actually seized George Owen's land for himself um and built Fort Chastain there. Um, which was used to house Cherokees after their arrest prior to removal, and to think about my great-great-grandfather's land being used for that and how painful that must have been for him to witness as kind of a retaliatory um, tactic on the agent's part. Um, You know, it stoked the fires in me um, to do the work that I do with um, Native communities around um, sustaining cultural knowledges in order as a practice of resistance. They know you're not going to take who we are or what we do away from us, how we see the world. Um so yeah, it's it's a hard story to tell without, you know, feeling the emotions uh, connected to it. And it makes me understand why my my family didn't talk about it, you know, why that story got lost in our conversations. Um, and I'm it also makes it very clear to me why in order to heal that from that trauma that the story has to be told now. It's okay to tell it now. Yeah. Thank you for sharing this with our
0: uh, listenership. And um, in this uh, conversation that uh, with uh, Dr. Holcels you're bringing to the University of New Mexico about eco-literacy, there is this main title uh, that actually grabbed my attention, Green Corn and Sacred Fire, and that's the talk you delivered at the University of New Mexico and then Indigenous Ceremonies of Resistance. What are you bringing uh, through this talk to our narrative and all the holes that are in our New Mexican narrative?
1: I was inspired by the... Resistance of the indigenous communities in Mexico in Chiapas in the early 90s. And they used a model of encuentros to ground conversations with local stakeholders, and politicians, and leaders, to respond to the challenges facing them ec- economically and environmentally. I think in New Mexico we need to be doing this, and we need to be centering that, around issues of environmental justice and the diversity that is New Mexico. So I think this notion of resistance is critical, but we need also a conversation about how to move toward um, reconciliation as well. And I think these ceremonies of resistance is that first kind of step that we need to be engaging. And I think uh, Rachel's insights are profound for us.
0: Rachel, can you briefly tell us what are the links between these past, I'm not sure, past indigenous ceremonies and
2: today's ways of cultural resistance? Well, it's a very complex sort of web of connections between the individual parts of my research that I always wish I had a clearer way to um, articulate, always working on that how to make it clear to multiple communities what it is that I see occurring in indigenous cultural practices, such as ceremony. To me, it's remarkable that ceremonial ways continue, you know, after 500 plus years of colonization in what we refer to as the United States. And so the the assertion of... These cultural practices to me in and of itself can be understood as resistance. Part of my work is field research, interviewing um, leaders, cultural literacy activists is what I refer to them as, people who teach culture and sustain culture in their own uh, lives by practicing ceremony and teaching others um, about ceremony. And they usually don't think of themselves as either activists or resistant. They're simply just being who they are. Um, and so they're not coming at it uh, through the lens of, of either of those things, um, activism or resistance. And yet um, there's a way in which persisting uh, in these practices is, is resistance um, in the sense that it <coughs> – you know, with ass- assimilation policies, part of their intent was to strip Native American communities of their identities. You know, um, of their own ceremonial ways. Um, you know, many people don't don't realize that you know the the massacre at Wounded Knee um, in 1890, I believe, was all about stopping ceremonial practices like the Ghost Dance. Um, so these these practices were very threatening to power. Um, and so anytime that indigenous peoples continue to practice these things, they are asserting themselves and their cosmologies, right, um, and, and in the world. So the green corn um, ceremonies is something that is practiced in um, traditional Muscogee Creek culture. And I have had the honor of being mentored by a Muscogee Creek elder um, for the last several years, and he uh, has taken me to participate in the green corn ceremonies. And green corn ceremonies are understood as a time of renewal. You think of green corn, you think of new life, and of course corn sustained um, the Southeastern cultures just as they sustained um, the Pueblo cultures here. Um, We have corn in common. (laughs) (laughs) But um, so this ceremony is something that is about new life and beginning again. Each year, it kind of commemorates the mark of a a new growing season in the cycle. And in Oklahoma history, about 10 years into our statehood, uh, there was an event called the Green Corn Rebellion. Um, which was an anti-draft rebellion, and it was um, armed—you know, tenant farmers essentially coming together to uh, resist the draft. And what was remarkable about—What year was it? 1917. So it was World War One. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what was rem- Oklahoma had been a state for ten years at that time. It Became a state in 1907. And I think what was remarkable about that particular rebellion is that it was triracial. Um, tenant farmers were, you know, poor whites, African Americans, Native Americans, African Native Americans, you know, um, and so it was a very, a very diverse response to to the war. A, a diverse kind of inclusive resistance. It took its name from the ceremonial calendar as a way of acknowledging sort of the resistance of the communities who practiced ceremonial ways at that time. So, resistance is, is thread through it um in multiple ways and into multiple communities. Um but green corn in its heart is a, a ceremonial um ceremonial event that usually takes place in July every year. Part of the green corn ceremony is um dancing that occurs around a fire. And in the southeastern cultures um including my own uh, Cherokee culture, we dance around fire um at night, and the dances go all night long. but that fire is is seen as a sacred reflection of the sun, and further the fire um connects us to other fires, so ceremonial grounds um in other places, other locations in uh Cherokee the Cherokee landscape or the Muscogee Creek landscape. We participate in each other's ceremonies quite regularly. But more importantly than that, um, fire is understood as something that everyone carries with them. Um, everybody has a fire. And when we come together, of course, that fire is stronger. And so it's a, it is a sacred element, um, that we that lives in our bodies in addition uh, in the world, and so those fires are representative of connections between us to to creation, to the creator to to the spirit and that 's what makes them so sacred.
1: My own day i
0: tie home know own. My own day We we'll listen to a Thanksgiving song performed by Grandma Dorothy and Dr. Jackson. They sing together in Kioa language and if you want to read the translation in English, you can find it online on kiowatalk.org. Let's learn how to say thank you in Kiowa language
3: ah, oh no. Kya ta omi, ahodo kya ta omi, do sai pe do yya ta omi, do sai pe do yya ta ya tei ko noi yya ta omi, maun.
0: are on Espejos de Slant today with Dr. Michelle Hall-Kels. She's Associate Professor in the Department of English at the University of New Mexico and with Dr. Rachel C. Jackson, Cherokee Nation of Oklahoma, an Associate Professor of Native American Literatures and Rhetorics at the University of Oklahoma. And today we're talking about, well, what ignited our conversation was this title of the talk that you were uh, delivering at the University of New Mexico, Green Corn and Sacred Fire, Indigenous Ceremonies of Resistance. And this is a question, as I was telling you, is, is always it has been always in my heart since I came to New Mexico, and it is about this community that we have with several layers of trauma. And in, in your talk, there are also layers. It's not only one trauma, there are layers of historical trauma there going on that in your work, uh, uh, Dr. Uh, Jackson, you were saying uh, in your work resisting relocation, uh, that there are some models for doing the work of leadership. What are your thoughts that then help to move on as community in a better way, just Mm -hmm. to say something?
1: If you look at our future and a vision of what public education should be in light of climate change and... Natural resource depletion, our fate, our well-being, our health, regionally, locally, and globally, is inextricably connected. So we need to find a way to acknowledge the historical trauma, acknowledge the impact of institutionalized racism that has so conditioned the distribution of social goods. And the depletion of those social goods means that those most, most vulnerable communities are likely those that have been dealing with repetitive trauma through history, historical trauma. And that has to be central to a conversation about restorative justice and environmental literacy. So I think that's kind of the starting point that I, we need to openly acknowledge that history and not ignore the fact that we tend to reproduce the violence over time. And I think that's a conversation that we are reluctant to have in a public sphere. Uh, We need to be in in small communities, small circles, like our talk this past week, and then create more opportunities for that in our classrooms and other public spaces.
2: Yes. I mean, I think small spaces for conversation uh, in many ways are the most generative. And you make a good point. People feel safer and more connected in small spaces to the folks that they're having that conversation with. When I think about indigenous models of, of leadership, um, I always think about uh, a story that was told to me by a Kiowa elder who I work with named J.T. Goombai. And, you know, he tells this story so well. I've heard it so many times, but every time he tells it, I find it interesting, which is the mark of a good storyteller, you know. <laughs> but we are learning from you.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: every time a story is told, it, it enacts. The context within which it is told, um, it connects the story to that context in ways that listeners have to then figure out for themselves. And this is one of those stories, but he tells the story of um, how the Kiowa camp leaders, um, we, we refrain from using the word chiefs, um, but Kiowa camp leaders, you know, they were, they were respected um, for how well they provided for their people. And it was reciprocal in the sense that they knew that their strength came from the size of their camp, right? So if they were on uh, a war party or a, a hunting party, they needed the strongest, you know, um, the strongest participants in those, in those journeys. And so the more that they had, the better. And if a Kiowa camp leader did something that was offensive to his camp, inappropriate, abusive, exploitative, um, self-centered, um, any, any sort of you know, corruption that might arise, he would wake up in the morning and come out of his teepee and realize that his camp was gone. <laughs> they would simply pack up and leave mm-hmm. him. Hmm. Um, and that was something that kept those leaders in line. As JT says, they voted with their feet, you know, (laughs) right? literally (laughs) get up and they would move, they would leave. And so I think um, that's something that we can carry into our conversations with the communities that we're wanting to connect with and engage over conversations about environmental justice. Um, You know, we have to remember that. If we fancy ourselves as leaders in that conversation, that we are certainly beholden to to the communities that um, are interested in participating in the work with us. And then in many ways, that means there truly is no leader. There is no, There truly is no, no one in power if that community holds um, the power to decide who they're going to work with and who they're not going to work with. So it creates humility, you know, for those of us who are trying to. To, to do this work.
0: Thanks so much for sharing your thoughts with our listeners, especially our Espejos de Estelan listeners. And uh, can we share with our listeners if they want to contact you, what are your next events, your next uh, steps? Because I know you are moving, and you're moving fast. Uh, and about uh, your next events as well, uh, Dr. Jackson, with our listeners?
1: Yes, Um we're hoping to cultivate conversations not only on the UNM campus, but in communities within the New Mexico region. So we'll, we are um, having an event in Hillsboro, uh, which is down in southern New Mexico. We are also inviting um, our students to consider ways that they can have conversations here on campus through the Lowell Gardens Initiative at campus, and also inviting students to and leaders to find ways to connect nationally through the National Consortium of Environmental Rhetoric and Writing with other educators nationwide. So all of these are on the digital hub of eco-literacy at UNM. It is a constantly changing site. We don't think anybody has the market on environmental discourse or um, knowledge. That's why we're keeping it a very inclusive space to invite um, leaders, programs, um, curriculum, and other events to c- get um, as much access to um, the community as possible. So.
0: Dr. Jackson, what are you planning to do in, as your next steps, uh, <laughs> publishing or uh, events? And?
2: Yes. Well, I think right now one of my primary projects is the org website. Um, and... You know, it's, it's it's a living digital archive um, where we're capturing the knowledge of uh, the current generation of elders, those who want to share that knowledge um, with their own communities and with the broader public. And there seems to be this very interesting um, tide kind of coming into shore of elders who are realizing that as they pass on, they they are taking with them a great deal of cultural knowledge that um, they would like to leave here, like to leave behind them um, for the future generations. And so the KiowaTalk dot org website is one way of helping to sustain their knowledge. Um, so I would encourage everybody to take a look at that, um, either because of an interest in Kiowa language and culture or as a model for how they can do it in their own communities. And otherwise, I'm working on a book manuscript, which is what we must do in this world uh, as academics, um, turning my dissertation into a book.
1: Um, We'll wait for that. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I I have one more thing. Um, The 50th anniversary of Earth Day is coming up in April 2020 from a native cosmology, Everyday Earth Day, but i think we need we need these moments to mark history and mark our um commitments to the future so we're really looking at a s- statewide network of celebrations for earth day in 2020 so i look forward for to for that
2: <laughs>
0: Thank you so much to you both. Uh, today on Espejos de Slán. we were with our guest, Dr. Michelle hall uh, She She's Associate Professor in the Department of English at the University of New Mexico, and Dr. Rachel C. J. Jackson, Cherokee Nation of Oklahoma, and Associate Professor of Native American Literatures and Rhetorics at the University of Oklahoma. For Espejos de Aslan today, Cristina Bachini. <laughs> ¶¶
3: do I pe do time on me. You take home, no you're me. day. Ah ho, ki me. Ah ho, dog, ki me. I time on me. Dog sai bei do ya ta ya te khom na ya ta on me ma on day a ho dokhi ya ta ome me a ho ya ta on me sai do ya ta on Da-t-sai-pe-do-ya-ta-o-me me ya na ya ta o me ma on de ho o me ho ya ta o do ya ta Dot sai pe do ya tamame ya maonde